Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. Hey, y'all. I know I said that I was going to take a two-week hiatus and come back with stronger episodes, and I started off with stronger episodes, and I know this sounds like a, a excuse, but honestly, it's like a wake-up call. Um... I literally came down with a sixth grade, sixth grade, six day migraine. And if anybody's ever had a migraine before knows it's horrible. I honestly tried to interview the last interview I did with Trenton, um, which was the last, the previous episode before this one. Um, I, I was actually struggling through it, but I'm like, you know what? It's not as bad. I can get through it. I can get through it. I, I'm tired of canceling things, you know, I'm tired of rescheduling and canceling so I can get through it. And then I interviewed somebody else and I was like, okay. And then the following day I was interviewing some of the people that are on the podcast this week. And during one of the interviews, I was like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm literally about to throw up. And I had two more interviews scheduled for that day. So I was like, you know what? I have a breaking point and everybody's human. And when we're sick, we need to remember and know that we're sick. Um, I ended up not doing some of the things that I'd wanted to do that week because for my other job, for my blogging job, um, because of the fact that the migraine hit. So basically I canceled everything, even, um, I hated it, but I had to tell a friend, no, I had already promised her that I would work for her that one day because they heard a huge festival. And I was like, Nope, can't do it. Migraines has hit. And it is not, it is not stopping. And anybody that has ever had a migraine knows normally the day after a migraine, you're feeling very washed out. You're very tired. You're really worn out. So can you imagine having one for six days? Um, last week, I kind of just slowly worked a little bit. Um, took took some time for myself as well. I went to the event that I was supposed to go to on Friday because at that point I could still go. So I went to that Monday, um, came home, promptly fell asleep on the couch. Because once again, like I said, your body is just tired. Um, so that happened. And then on Tuesday, Tuesday was the day where I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm just, just going to go with the flow, try to get caught up on some paperwork and stuff and not interview anybody. Wednesday, same thing happened. Um, Thursday, Thursday I had my haircut. So Thursday was a, a me day, a self-care day. And I also had some pictures um, taken that day that I already had scheduled and and I can't wait for you guys to read all about that on The Writer and the Farmer because I'm going to write about that this week. Um, and then Friday was finally when I was like, you know what, I finally feel okay to do some stuff, but I still wasn't able to come in and actually sit down and work in the blog cabin. I actually went to another event, which is called Dressing the Abbey, which is get, um, promoted by the North Carolina Museum of History, which if you know, I'm based in North Carolina. It was basically going through and looking at all the costumes of Downton Abbey. So because you can imagine right now, I've never watched Downton Abbey before. But after watching that, I'm like, I'm binge watching it right now. So I decided I was going to get up and start this week fresh um, and start a new season with this season. Um, I can't wait for you guys to hear. I'm leaving, leaving off with a very strong contender, Ruth. Ruth, who wrote a book called Love is Blind, and it's going to be all in the show notes. But it's an amazing story of how her mom named Peach, this is what she called her mom, never gave up on her and never told her she was any different just because she was blind. And it's a really amazing story of love between a mother and a daughter, um, of how one girl whose mom believed in, how when somebody believes in you, they really, really, really 
it does a lot to help you go further in your life. So I suggest you surround yourself with friends that are like right there all the time and, and really pushing you to go be better and do better. And so with that said, I'm going to go ahead and go into the intro of the show and hope you really enjoyed this interview with Ruth. Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Chats in the Blog Cabin, you know, the show where I virtually invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting all about the book, Love is Blind by Ruth Vallis. And Ruth, I want to say that I was most excited about having you on, even though we've had to reschedule this several times, is because when I was reading your book, thoughts on my grandmother came to me because my grandmother was legally blind. So I just thought that tenacity that you have is just amazing. So tell us a little about yourself before we get into about your book. I am the only girl in five children. I have four brothers and I'm the second youngest of that clan. And I was born in 1960 in Toronto where I still live. And before the age of three, when I was around two and a half years old, I suddenly went blind. And they didn't know for a couple of years why that was. But anyway, I, I, uh, I went blind and life then changes for everybody in the family. So, um, you know, my parents had to adjust and my brothers had to accommodate. And uh, 60, 59 years after that, uh, it's a very nice family and a very good life. And so I think we adjusted. <laughs> I think I think you really adjusted. I mean, the parts where you were talking about riding your bicycle when you were a little girl, I was like, that would scare me as a mom. But you were like, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. I don't think there was ever a point where you were saying you didn't think you could do anything that your brothers could do. Well, I think, yes, because I, I, look upon myself as a normal person who just happens to be blind. And I think that there's a very big difference between being somebody who can see, for instance, as a, as a young adult or an adult or something and goes blind and has to learn to accommodate and somebody who's blind from very young. And of course, two and a half, I had been able to see, and I guess I functioned as a seeing child, but I was young enough that, being blind became just a part of me. And so, you know, when you want to do things, you do them. You don't stop when you're, especially as a child, and say, gosh, I, I can't, I don't know if I can do this because I'm blind. You don't think about that. You don't, you don't go through life and say, I don't think I can do this because I'm short or I'm tall or, you know, you don't do that. You just, this is me and you just go on. And I think that was the case. And my family certainly never said you can't do that because you're blind. They just said, go for it. And uh, that's a really wonderful thing for me. Now in your, in your um, book, you talk about the close relationship you have with your mom, Peach. Yes. And I absolutely love that. So let's talk about the close relationship that you have with her. Oh uh, yeah. She was really special. Um, a bit of a family dynamic. My father was a second world war veteran and he was injured. He lost a great deal of his hearing, but he also had 
significant PTSD, but we didn't call it that in those days. Uh, Post-traumatic stress, we called it shell shock and I don't know, all sorts of different names. And they didn't talk about it and they didn't deal with it. So unfortunately, we as a family had to deal with it as best we can. So my mother was in a, a, a couple of situations. First of all, because of my father's PTSD, he didn't work full time. He did piecework. He actually made pianos. And so he would make, when a piano was ordered, he'd go to the factory and he'd work on the piano. And when they had no orders, he, he didn't go to work. And so he couldn't get a job where he could work full time because he couldn't take the stress of it. So my mother worked part time, but she was strong and capable and very bright and she could have worked full-time except that if she worked full-time which he couldn't do and made more money than he could make it would have hurt she felt it would have hurt his wounded soldier's ego and she felt it was more important that we as a family suffered a little than he suffered more and she had an enormous respect for the wounded soldier and for what he had sacrificed his youth and his well-being uh, on the battlefields of Europe and so she was a very supportive encouraging person to him very gentle very calm very strong she was also the matriarch of the family she was the one who laid down the law and my father always said whatever your mother says that's the way it is he never went against her and she never went against him so there was a united force always you couldn't play mom off against dad or whatever it never worked so you might as well not i could talk about that no try it but she was also very uh respectful of the fact that she was raising sons that she wanted to become socially constructive men who were capable and respectful to women. And my father was the same on that and backed her up on that. But she also wanted, uh, she always wanted a daughter and she always wanted a daughter to name Ruth because she always loved Ruth in the Bible. And so uh, she was 37 when I finally came along. It was a long wait, but she, uh, when I went blind, it didn't, phase her because nothing did. She took everything in stride, very, very calm person and a great faith, an enormous faith in God. And she believed that she wasn't alone in this journey. Besides my father and my brother, she really believed that she wasn't alone uh, spiritually. And she was determined that I was going to be an independent woman. She I guess could best be described as a feminist. She believed in the power of women. She believed in the strength of women individually and collectively, women working together. And she didn't look at me as a child with blind and therefore limitations. She looked at me as the potential of any woman to be independent and to be strong and blindness was something we were going to have to learn to work around and not to use as an excuse because no excuses are allowed so i remember one part in the book where you were having surgery and the doctor was telling her to like kind of sugar sugarcoat it for you but she was like straight out telling you what was happening and for me i thought wow what a parent to be able to talk to your child like that to to have that type of relationship with your child to know that, hey, 
whatever you say, you're you're going to believe your parent and you're going to have faith that your parent's going to tell you exactly the truth with everything. Absolutely, straight up. And my mother was somebody that I could always talk to and I could talk to her about anything. And I think that's a very, um, very good observation from you because that was the truth. I was 11 years old. I was sitting in the ophthalmologist's office. They said, there's a cataract on your eye. We believe there is some sight behind that cataract. We'd like, we've, you know, we can take it off and give it a shot, but it's 50-50. He said to my mother, he really was telling my mother. And he said, what do you think, Mrs. Vallis? And my mother said, okay, Ruthie, what do you want to do? And he said, no, Mrs. Vallis, you know, I was too young to give my consent. Mm -hmm. And he wanted her, her consent. And my mother said, oh, no, doctor, this is not my eye. This is Ruthie's eye. And she said, now, Ruthie, you understand what the doctor is saying. Now, you know, understand, I'm not quite 12 years old yet, but I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't a shy child and I wasn't a dull child intellectually. So she said to me, the doctor's saying, Ruthie, that there may be sight behind the cataract. And if we take it off, you have a 50% chance that you'll get some sight and you have a 50% chance that you won't get any sight. Now, here's the thing. If you say, I don't want to take that chance, I'll stay as I am, then we, we won't put you through the surgery. And that's the end of the story. If you say, I want to take that chance, and you have the surgery, and it doesn't work out, you have no one to blame because you've made the choice. By the same token, if you decide to have the surgery and there is vision, you have only yourself to thank because you made the choice. Do you understand? I said, yes, mommy, I understand. Do you want the surgery? I said, yes. The doctor was shocked. He said to me years later when I went back to see him, I was having some unique issues and I went back is a children's hospital in Toronto, but I was 26 years old and he said to me, you know, my mother wasn't with me, how's your wonderful mother and so on. And, and he said to me, she is possibly the greatest mother that ever crossed the threshold of sick children's hospital. This is a huge international children's hospital with thousands of people crossing the threshold every day. But he never had a parent who was that forthright and that honest um, with a child, but at the same time, teaching the child about responsibility and living with the consequences of one's choices. This is a very uh, important thing we can bring to children is to teach them to take responsibility and to live with the consequences because there are always consequences. So yeah, it was a, that was my mother through and through and through. And it was a great um, experience between us. The surgery didn't go well. Um, but you know what? That didn't matter. I still had her and life, love goes on. Love carries on. I love that. Now we're going to take a brief commercial break and then we'll be right back to talk more about your book, Love is Blind. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now.
Hi, my name is Joanna, and I would like to share with you a little bit about Shores of Grace, Shores Philly. It's a ministry located in Philadelphia. The portion of Shores that I volunteer for goes into Kensington, an area greatly impacted by homelessness and addiction. And we go and we take love, food, clothing, snacks, conversation. Um, we believe that it is a way that we can meet people right where they are and show them the love of Jesus. Uh, we have seen lives changed in big ways and in small ways, and we have built wonderful relationships with the people in the community. Uh, we have big plans, more we'd like to do, um, and we would appreciate any support, either through prayer or through donation. If you would like to donate, you can go to shoresofgrace.com, and in the menu, click on Donate. And we just ask that you put Philly in your donation comments. Thank you. And we are back talking with Ruth about her book, Love is Blind. Now, Ruth, what made you decide to write the book? Well, I, I was integrated into the public school system in 1968. Until 1968, all blind children in Canada were sent to one of three schools for the blind. And I went to the one that was in Ontario, but it was uh, a ways from Toronto. And so it was a residential school. And in 19, I went there for grades one and two. And then there was an experiment to integrate blind children into the public school system. And they chose eight children. Most of them were sort of high school age or senior high age. But I was just a little girl starting grade three. I was eight years old and I was chosen. And so it was a very important uh, step in education. They were already integrating some children in the US, but uh, this was new in Canada. And so because of that, from a very young age, I would often speak at conferences and, you know, uh, different sort of events for the education of the blind. And later on, as I became a, a professional person in healthcare, I did speaking at conferences from my my healthcare background and so when i would come out people would you know read this the syllabus for the the conference and they would say my name and it would say uh physiotherapy physical therapist hydrotherapist going to speak on pain management and arthritis or whatever it didn't say anything about me being blind and when i would walk up to the podium with a guide dog and and braille notes they would all <gasps> and they would all flip through their syllabus to see where they had missed it. And I would say, hello, my name is Ruth Fallis. So they wouldn't think I was in the wrong place and uh, usher me away. So um, so I would speak and people would often say to me, you need to write your story. You need to write your story because you know you don't get to see too many blind people at medical conferences and international conferences in particular. But the other thing is I always spoke at conferences for the education and the training of the blind. And they would often have people there speaking who were psychologists or educational psychologists, different sort of experts. And they would talk about the training and the, the raising of blind children. And I always felt they should have invited my mother to come and speak because who better to talk about raising a blind child than somebody who'd done it? But they didn't, and I don't know that she would have felt confident to speak about it, although I did say to her at one point, what would you say to them? And she said, 
I would tell them that blind children are like any other child. When they're right, you praise them. When they're wrong, you punish them and you love them all the time. And so I said, okay, well, I'll share that myself. But then when I retired from physical therapy, I decided that I was going to write the book, but I was going to try and really write about the relationship between my mother and myself. Actually, I started just to write about my experiences as people had asked me, but as the book evolved, it really was about my mother and me. So when it came down to editing, we just pared it down so that mm -hmm. it really did focus on that because um, as one of my brothers uh, once said to me, um, all my success really goes back to mom. And that's, that's the truth. Yeah, because you can definitely see, not to say take away from anything that your dad did in your upbringing, but you can definitely see where your mom was the driving force behind you, yes. making sure that you weren't treated any differently because you were blind. Yes, correct. Now, how did your siblings take it that you were blind? You know, because you, you, you said you were the only girl, so obviously you were different in that way, and you had four brothers, so how did they take it? Well, they they took it the way my parents expected them to take it. Let me just say that because in the household there, every household has rules or parameters or expectations. And my parents ensured my brother and my brothers treated me the way my parents wanted me treated. So we had things that had to be considered. For instance, you can't leave cupboard doors open. You can't leave things all over the place, the floor, you can't leave shoes all over the place and so on because they become a tripping hazard or a head banging hazard or whatever. And so my parents really reinforced things that would make life easier for me and better for me. But at the same time, my parents felt it was important that they, my blindness wasn't their burden. Um, so, for instance, my brothers loved to go fishing. And my mother loved to go fishing, too, even more than my father. And so sometimes as a whole family, we would go fishing and I would be made to fish along with the rest of them because, you know, I didn't necessarily want to be there and it wasn't really fun. Not that fishing can't be fun, but when you're a little tiny child and you have to sit there and be quiet and you're blind and it's, a, you know, it's a boring world sort of, I learned to love it. But as a very young child, I did not love it. And my mother would say, you're a part of this family and this family is fishing today. So, you know, suck it up, buttercup, basically. <laughs> but, um, but there were some times when my mother would say to my father, take the boys fishing and Ruth and I are going to have a ladies day. And so my brothers didn't have to say, oh, Ruth, will you be quiet? You're scaring the fish away. And would you stop doing this and stop doing that? So they had their own time with dad. They had their time away from me. And mom and I would go and, you know, go to the Woolworths lunch counter for lunch and, you know, that sort of, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, so that didn't allow my brothers to resent me because to raise a child who's blind, to raise any child is a lot of work. But when a child is blind, you can't assume as much. For instance, you have to teach everything individually because when you can see, 
you can pick up on a lot of visual clues and you can see the bigger picture visually. But when you're blind, you have to be taught all those things. All those, every little detail of life has to be taught because you don't see it. And one can learn to be audibly observant, as it were, but certainly as a child, every little single detail has to be taught. And so there's a lot of time and attention. And so my parents worked very hard, and particularly my mother, to make sure that if she gave me a lot of attention, that she gave my younger brother a lot of attention. And they sort of tried to share things up. And um, and like I say, not to let them feel left out or not to resent the fact that their sister is blind. That doesn't mean it didn't happen sometimes, but they worked very hard to not let it happen. Yeah, I think I remember one instance in the book where you were talking about you were walking to school and sometimes your brother would walk to school with you, but sometimes he was like, no, you're too boring. I want to go walk with my friends and you would have to walk to school by yourself. Correct. Correct. And that was, I would say that's one of a few situations that made life a little lonely for me. So I had to learn to enjoy my own company. So the pandemic hasn't been that much of a struggle. <laughs> I'm used to being on my own. But, um, you know, that that can make life a little lonely when you when you know, yeah, I can't I want to run and play with my friends. I don't want to have to walk along with my blind sister, you know, that sort of way. So yeah, there was a little bit of that at times. Uh, but as we grew up, we became the best of friends. And, and so, um, you know, it wasn't always like that. But children need to be their own person and they need to be heard and they need to have their concerns heard and so on. And for my brother, I guess that was the sort of thing that was going on. He, he needed that. He didn't need to be the blind girl's brother. He needed to be his own person. And that's fair enough. Now let's talk about when you were younger, when you first started school, they sent you actually away from school to yes. learn Braille. Let's yes. talk about that, because that had to be scary, because what, your dad or mom would take you to what, it sounded like a subway, and they would put you on the train, and then someone would be on the other end to get you off the train? Okay, yes, yes. That's when I went to the residential school from grade one. I was six years old when I started there, and like I said, I was eight when I left. Now. Um, yes, my father on Sunday night would take me on the subway down to the train station in Toronto, and then he would put me on the train. Now, just imagine a six-year-old on a train. There would be some other blind kids on the train, but we were just kids on the train, and uh, there wasn't any adults with us, and I knew the stop I had to get off, and uh, and I would lead the other children. I seemed to do a lot of that. And so we'd get off and there was someone there to meet us on the platform. And then on Friday night, I'd be put back on the train and travel to Toronto. And and uh, my mother would be on the platform to snatch me into her arms and take me home. And so, yeah, I was just a, a little girl and living in a in a dormitory in a residential school. And you know, we were cared for. We had three meals a day and we were clean and we went to school and we had some play time. But you can pay people for caring, but you can't pay people for love. Mm -hmm. There's no 
tucking me in at night, no saying my prayers with me, uh, none of the stuff that I had at home, none of it. Now, I went home for the weekends, like I said, so I, at least on the weekends I had all the hugs I needed and then some and uh, my mother kneeling beside my bed with me at night to say prayers and I, you know, that sort of really wonderful stuff that helps to strengthen children's character. But um, yeah, I was a little girl away from home and away from the person I adored most in the world. And she was away from me. And I think her heart was broken. But at six or seven years of age, when one's own heart is broken, one doesn't necessarily consider what the adults are feeling. You know, my mother was strong and she was always strong. I didn't see the tears. I didn't see the heartaches that she was going through, but I, I know she did. I know she did. So, um, but uh, I survived it and many children have survived that kind of situation. I'm very glad for integration, but integration has its own issues. And um, especially when it was a new program. But um, I just spent two years there and my mother, with her endless wisdom, hung a cord around my neck with a key on it to the front door of our house. Now, my brothers didn't even have a key to the front door, but my mother put it around my neck and she said, Ruthie, this key is to remind you that home is always home. And we're sending you to this school, not because we want to, but because we have to because I don't know what will become of you. But if nothing else, you'll learn to read Braille and you will be able to entertain yourself. So she and my father were themselves voracious readers and certainly knew the importance of learning to read. And she said, I can't teach you Braille, Ruthie. So I have to send you. But home is always home. The door will never be locked to you. This was great wisdom, great wisdom to give me that key and so that I could wear it around my neck and um, and know that I, I couldn't go home. I, I just, I couldn't, you know, go to the train station, mm -hmm. hop on the train myself, that I couldn't leave the school. But somehow in my heart, that key meant that I could go home. Do you see some of yourself, your mom and yourself? I do now. I do now, um, for sure. Um, my mother died 10 years ago Christmas, and uh, there have been situations when I would, I think, what would mom do in this situation? What would she say? And I think, I know exactly what she would do and exactly what she would say. I had enough of it, enough of education. And... Um, I'm not the calm, gentle person she was. Uh, I'm not not calm. I can handle urgent situations well, but I'm not the gentle person she was. And she commented on that at the end of her life. She said, I, I wish you were a little gentler. And I said to her, where is the line, Ma, Peach? I called her Peach. Where is the line, Peach? where one is gentle and one is not gentle. The fact is you work so hard to make me strong and to make me independent and to make me not back down to things. That's 
unfortunately why I'm not perhaps as gentle as I might be because uh, because it's a very fine line, I think, and I, I don't know where it is. So I try to be gentler. I, I certainly uh, hope I'm a kind person, but um, I'm a little tough. I'm a little bit tough. Yeah. What made you decide to go into doing, you said physical therapy? Yes, yes. That's a very good question. I always wanted to be a doctor since I was a little child. And although there are a few, have been a few blind doctors in the world, there are not many. And that really requires a certain amount of mentorship, I think. And I, there may have been people out there who would have helped me uh, if I had really pushed for it. But I was sitting on the floor at home in the living room doing math homework. And I heard, just as I'm speaking to you, I heard a voice say, physiotherapy, which is the British term for physical therapy. And uh, I heard them say physiotherapy. And it was just like someone was in the room, but there wasn't anyone in the room. So I went to the phone and I phoned the Canadian National Institute for the Blind Department of Rehabilitation. And I said to the gentleman there, tell me about physiotherapy. And he said, there's a school in England that teaches blind and visually impaired people to be physical therapists. And he sent me the application and I applied and that's how it happened. That's exactly how it happened. So <laughs> I, I heard a voice and, uh, and I went to England into bustling London without really knowing anyone. And it has been said that Canada and England are two nations divided by the same language. And it's true. They don't speak the same English that I speak. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. Like, for instance, we would say a face cloth. They would say a flannel. We would say a stove. They would say a cooker. We would say a stroller. They would say a push chair. You know, we would say a radio. They would say a wireless. This is two different languages. So I was trying to um, find my way around. I didn't get an orientation even though it was a school for blind and visually impaired people, I did not get an orientation to the school, to the neighborhood, to anything. And I had to learn everything the hard way. And gosh, it was hard. It was hard. And it was an enormous challenge, an enormous, uh, an enormous challenge to my self, my strength as a person and to my faith. And I, learned a great deal about myself. I learned a lot about what I can, what I can do, what I can't do. But most of all, I learned the wonderful truth that when we have a relationship with God, we are absolutely never alone. And I believe that God called me to be a physical therapist. I believe it was he who spoke to me. And for that reason, he made all things possible. He doesn't he doesn't call the ready, but he readies the called so most of the time. Sometimes he calls the, re calls the ready, but really he readies the called. So uh, the challenges were put before me, but the escape, the escape hatches were put before me too. Escape to success, not escape to avoid. And um, I, found, I found strength. 
uh, like I said, in my relationship with him, but strengthened myself. And um, I learned a lot about myself and about healthcare. And I ended up with a 32-year career that I absolutely loved. I treated patients from my first day to my last day. I got a specialty a qualification in treating patients in water. I eventually got a Master of Science degree as well on top of it. And I became a, a consultant to the Ministry of Health. I became a lecturer at the University of Toronto. I had a career beyond belief. I had a career that any ordinary sighted person would have been happy to have. And I had it because uh, it's what God called me to. And he is faithful. He's really, that is, the, that is the bottom line. He is faithful. Wow, that is the story of faith. You just said that you learned a lot about yourself. So what did you learn? Because obviously there was, like you said, you had a lot of challenges that you had to overcome. Well, I, I learned to not be so reactionary in a lot of situations. So if I found myself in a challenging spot, I didn't fly off the handle or freak out. I would say, okay, let's think this through. And I have, I have a fear of fire. I think it's natural. I think a lot of blind people probably do because you don't, you know, if you smell smoke and you can hear crackling or something like that, but you don't always know exactly where it is and you don't want to run into it. You want to get away from it and it can be daunting. And if you're in a, one is in a situation where there's fire alarms ringing and there's smoke billowing and that happened. We had a fire in the school, in the college. And and the fire alarm was ringing like crazy and the smoke was billowing and people were running. And it would have been very easy. There was a, a girl there who was also totally blind and she was running in circles and saying, help me, help me. I don't know where I am. She became completely disorientated. But I had stopped for a minute, gathered my wits, made my plan. I grabbed her by the arm and I said, come on, let's go. And we got out of the building safe and sound. And so I learned to take a second even just to sort of take stock. Where am I? What am I doing? What, what's, what's possibly lying ahead of me? What are the risks? You know, in every situation. And that's, that's held me in good stead because as a healthcare professional, I have had to deal with emergent situations, you know, patients collapsing from, you know, heart attacks in therapy or, or, you know, all sorts of things, patients falling, you know, all sorts of things can happen. And one has to deal with emergencies. And that's, that's helped me a great deal just to be able to just say, okay, let's not panic. Let's take a second, think it through and deal with it. I love that. Now I've noticed when we first, when you first started writing your, when I first started reading your book, one of the very first books that you actually were learning to read was the Bible because you, your parents knew how to read it and you knew it already. Yes. That's because when I was, um, you know, when I started to read in grade one, that was 1966. Now there are a lot of, 
books for blind children that they were not when I was a child. For instance, they have um, seedling books. And seedlings, for anyone who doesn't know about it, and if anyone has a child in their life or a grandchild or anything, that's an organization to get involved with. It's American seedling books. And what they do is they take ordinary ink print books like, for instance, um, Goodnight Moon, for instance, and they put Braille along with the ink print so that a blind person can read with a sighted child or a sighted person can read with a blind child. Mm -hmm. So they have all these, you know, um, all the sort of typical sort of, uh, you know, cat in the hat books or Curious George or all sorts of books that, you know, right up to when a child might be able to read on their own. But for young children, they have all these books. Well, they didn't have that when I was a child. So if I brought a book home to read it, my mother, I'd say, what's this word? Or what does this mean? My mother and father couldn't help me because they didn't read Braille themselves. Although my mother learned the very basic system so she could write me letters when I was away at school, but she couldn't read it. And especially with all the punctuation and everything, she couldn't read it. So my mother thought there's gotta be a way that I can read to get practice, but she would know what I was reading and she could help me. And she said, oh, I got it, the Bible. So my parents read the Bible every day themselves. So my, I had an aunt who was blind and she sent me her Braille New Testament. So in the evenings after supper, my mother would sit in her rocking chair and she would knit um, warm clothing for orphan children in Northern Canada and for the homeless people of Toronto. So that's what she was doing. And I would be reading the Bible to her. We read through the gospels together. So I would read it. And then if I was stuck on a word or I, something, she would, she would say, oh, that's whatever, because she knew the Bible well. So she could help me. And at the same time, she also would talk to me about things. Like when John the Baptist was beheaded, she said to me, that was because of jealousy, Ruth. And jealousy is a very bad thing because there is no jealousy in true love, which you will learn later on when you read 1 Corinthians 13. And so we had this wonderful time together. She was doing something to help others at the same time as she was helping me. And we were bonding, honestly, at the level of our soul. And I think when we talk, when we use the term soulmate very, very often, but a true soulmate is somebody who meets you at the level of your spirit, I think. And my mother was my soulmate. That's where it began. A love for her, a love for the Bible, and a love to meet the needs of other people, to people in the streets of Toronto who needed hats and mittens and scarves and people in Northern Canada were cold, you know? So it was just uh, it's sweetness. It brings tears to my eyes. It's really, it's really sweetness. Yeah, because you honestly, you already said that your mom would put your dad's feelings above everything else as well. So, man, I wish I could have met your mom because your mom sounds like an amazing person. She really is. A friend of mine who also had a very lovely mother said to me one time, I wish your mother were my mother. And I said, you got to be kidding. You have a great mother. And she said, yes, Ruth, but 
she's my mother. Your mother somehow has the ability to also be your friend. But I will say that, yes, she was like a friend to me, a friend that I could talk to about anything, and we would laugh about things, and we would be silly together, and we would write, she'd write silly poems for me, and we'd sing all the time, and, you know, just great times. But she was at the beginning and at the end, and always my mother. So when she said, jump, even at 50, I jumped. You know, that never changed. That never changed. So um, she was, everybody really liked my mom. She had a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. She was really insane. But um, but she, she was a very kind person. Uh, when she, at the end of her life, she lived in a senior's apartment building just around the corner from my house. And when she could no longer go down to, she was palliative and she could no longer go down to her mailbox and pick up what was left for her. Uh, one of the neighbors would go down and she'd say, Blanche, that was her name, do you give to all these charities? Covenant House, World Vision, Christian Blind Missions International, blah, 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 World Wildlife. And she'd say, oh, yeah, I give every, I'll give all these charities a little bit. She said, I've never known anybody who supports so many charities. And she was that kind. She was kind and she, she genuinely cared. And as long as she had enough, that's all she needed. So I think in a, in a way, this book is a love story about you and your mom. It's a love story to your mom. It's a love it story is. to your mom. It is. It is. Continue. No, it's it 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 absolutely is a love story to my mom, um, but uh, she loved me as much or more than I loved her. So, wow, our time is almost up. Is there anything else that you want to share? I hope if people will read my book, that they won't focus on the fact that I'm blind, but focus on the fact in one's own life of possibilities, that people will see things about themselves, like you know, your grandmother, or they will see people within their own, people or situations within their own lives that they can relate to, and that they will see the strength within themselves, particularly women, particularly women, um, and it says in the very, in the preface that the 19th century American poet William Ross Wallace said, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And I'd love women to understand the strength they have within themselves. This world will be a better place when women believe in themselves and believe in each other and support and encourage each other. We owe it to ourselves to rock the world. Oh, I love that. Now tell people where they can find you at. Okay. My website is Ruth Vallis. Of course, Ruth, R-U-T-H, Vallis, V as in Victor, A-L-L-I-S, as in sugar. So RuthVallis.com is my website. And at the bottom, there's a place where people can email me if they want to 
tell me anything, share anything, ask me anything. I'm happy to hear from people. And it also tells you where you can get my book. And it's available through Barnes and Noble and Amazon and Kindle and so on. So people can order it for lots of places. I think Target and everything online will offer it. So um, I hope people will read it. And if they do, I hope they'll write to me. And I hope people will feel blessed. Well, I was certainly blessed when I read it. So I, you at least blessed one person. There you go. I certainly was blessed. And I, I applaud you for being number one brave because some of the things that you did when you were younger, I much, I couldn't have done that when I was younger. I mean, as a young child, I wouldn't have done it getting on a bus by myself or a train by myself, much less being a blind person. I mean, I can't imagine the bravery that cost you. Um, and I was grew up in the sixties too. I was born in the late sixties, but still, you know, so yeah, I can't even imagine that. Well, um, I think uh, bravery is courage in the face of fear. And I, I don't think I feared. I think I just always believed I could do things. And that may have been, I may have come out of this unscathed just because God is good, not because I was sensible. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm better by good luck than good management, as they say. But, uh, yeah, if I want to do something, I, I just... I just did it. And my, and you know, my mother would say, I was roller skating up and down the street and someone said to her, oh, Blanche, you're not going to let that child roller skate. My mother said, why not? She said, well, what if she falls over? She said, oh, we have band-aids. <laughs> just like with the ice skating rink as well, right? Oh yeah. She made me my, she and my second oldest brother, Christopher, they made me my own skating rink in the backyard every year. The best rink in the city. Beautiful skating around skating around and around but it was lonely because I was skating by myself but that's okay my mother said you cannot lament the things you cannot do find the things you can do and get on and do them so you know stop crying about I don't have this or I can't go there forget about it figure out what you can do and where you can go and do it and and that was the same with the skating rink you want to be able to skate there's a skating rink don't tell me you don't want to skate alone you want to skate there it is skate so yeah, they'll have to read the book to understand that story better. But but that's the way she was. And that was, you know, don't don't cry and whine. That's that's I think that's really should be the mantra of the pandemic. Don't cry about what you can't do. Just be grateful for what you have, grateful for what you can do and appreciate it. And then when things get better, go and do more. But if you can't hold people in your arms, smile at them on the Zoom, you know, don't. Just be grateful. And that was her. That's my mother. I could just imagine what she would be saying these days. Why are people whining so much? Just appreciate what you have. <laughs> I love that. So, Ruth, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and for writing your story so that other people can read about the your amazing love story with your mom. Thank you. So, guys, the book is Love is Blind, and I will put it in the show notes, all where you can get it, as well as where you can contact Ruth. And as always, um, be blessed, and most importantly, keep chatting. And see you on the next chat from the Blog Cabin. Bye. Chats from the Blog Cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.